If you will, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 27 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. And Father, we pray this morning that your gospel not come simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning... We want to look in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. The title of this morning's sermon is Jesus, the Humble, Exalted One. Becoming like Christ in humility and obedience produces unity and steadfastness in the church that is necessary for the proclamation of the gospel in the face of opposition and suffering. Becoming like Christ in humility and obedience produces unity and steadfastness in the church that is necessary for the proclamation of the gospel in the face of opposition and suffering. Let's look at the text together. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. God's word says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. For his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess, excuse me, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Becoming like Christ in humility and obedience produces unity and steadfastness in the church that is necessary for the proclamation of the gospel in the face of opposition and and suffering. Paul has not strayed from his focus in this letter from the beginning until now. He has zeroed in on the progress, the furtherance of the gospel. He does shift direction at this point in the letter from what exalting Christ looks like in his own life. Shifting to calling the saints in Philippi to a life worthy of the gospel. So he's removed the focus from himself, what Christ in his life looks like to what Christ should look like in the life 
of the saints. Paul's aim is still that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be promoted. Specifically through the lives of the believers in the city of Philippi. Paul is pushing the Philippians to action here. And in this part of his letter, through several imperative statements that we're about to begin to look at. Listen to the biblical commands to us as believers that we find in the text just from this morning and just past our text. He says, here's the commands. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, make my joy complete. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Hear the commands? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Look out for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves. And if we continued past the text, we'd see a couple of more imperatives follow it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So we, see a, we do see a shift. Though the, the focus, the goal is still the same. The goal of the progress of the gospel is still bleeding crystal clear in the book of Philippians. But there's a shift. And Paul's calling the Philippians to action. The first of these commands is found at the beginning of today's text. So let's see the text. Let's see what Paul has to say to us. In verse 27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul doesn't ask the believers here to make every effort to free him from his chains but rather that they adorn the gospel of Jesus. So when the text reads, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, it doesn't mean that we should live in such a way that we become worthy of the gospel and that God has to bestow his gospel on us because of the worthy manner in which we live. But rather the meaning is that because we have been saved by grace, through faith, through the truth of the gospel, we should live such lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. If Jesus, who is the gospel, has truly saved us, then we will arrange the whole, the entirety of our life to reflect that gospel to others. Your conduct should be the direct reflection of the gospel's saving, redeeming, sanctifying, resurrecting power of God. We have been called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what does this conduct look like? If this is what we've been called to, then what does this conduct look like? If he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, what does Paul mean? Well, I think he gives us insight to that in this very verse. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, there's some of Paul's fondness, desiring to come and see them. He says this, I will hear of you. Now here's what our conduct should look like. Conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. That I will hear of you, that you're doing two things. Standing firm in one spirit, one. Two, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Our conduct should be a steadfast striving together for the faith of the gospel. This means that our conduct should be both a standing firm and a striving together. That striving together and that standing firm are united in one purpose. The faith of the gospel. The gospel. And there's a twofold location that I see in the text for this conduct. If this conduct is to arise from us and to display itself in action, it has to be rooted somewhere. Paul says this. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one Spirit, with one mind. The root location from where this gospel-worthy conduct will arise is both in our spirit and mind. Our gospel-worthy conduct is rooted in both our spirit and our mind. 
The church is to be united in spirit and in mind, striving together and standing firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be standing firm and striving together in one spirit and one mind for the furtherance of the gospel. I think that's about every angle I could say it from. If all of us, believers in Christ, members here at Grace Church, were fixed on the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we wouldn't have time for petty disputes or selfish preferences. Factions arise when we take our eyes off of Christ and put them onto self. But if we would be united in spirit, be united in our minds for one purpose, and that is the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there wouldn't be time for these things. The simplest way for the church to be unified in spirit and in mind is to be about one thing, the gospel. But not only do we hinder the furtherance of the gospel through our lack of gospel-worthy conduct, but we also become vulnerable under the attacks of opposition. Paul's trying to address this very matter to the saints in Philippi. Continue with me in the text, beginning in verse 28. Let me finish 27 again. That I will hear of you standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too, from God. Paul says, if you are standing firm and striving together as one, you have no reason to be alarmed by your opponents. For one, if you're standing firm and striving together, you see your opponents for who they are. Your opponents do not come from within if they're true believers in Christ. Our fellow brothers and sisters are never our opponents. Now, sometimes there may be disputes. We see that to be the case in the church in Philippi. Paul has to address that, and we see that more clearly in chapter 4. But those weren't the opponents. Our opponents are always on the outside. But Paul says we have no reason to be alarmed by our opponents if we are standing firm in one spirit and striving together with one mind. If we're united behind the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have no reason to be alarmed. But so long as we are unsure of our purpose, then we cannot unite in purpose. It's impossible to be united if our body sees our purpose as being many different things. We state our purpose here at Grace Church. It's to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading His eternal joy. As I read texts like this in Philippians, and I see Paul begging the Philippians to be united in spirit and in mind, to, to be of one purpose, that is, the, the progress of the gospel. I'm thankful that we've pieced together our purpose statement here at Grace, that we are to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading His eternal joy. It's biblical. If we are not united, then we become vulnerable to attacks from our opponents. We see it over and over throughout Scripture. If we're united in one offensive movement to progress the gospel of Jesus Christ by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're less vulnerable to attack. But if we drop our offense, if we stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're no longer on the move forward, then we suddenly become vulnerable to attacks because we begin to look inward rather than outward. And as we look inward, we become vulnerable. What did the opposition look like for Paul and the church in Philippi? Though Paul does not elaborate here in the text, we can surmise from the rest of the letter that Paul is probably speaking of the Roman government. Even citizens of Rome 
that are located here in Philippi who very strongly have sworn allegiance to the emperor of Rome. And those who have sworn allegiance to Jesus, not the emperor, would be persecuted, as is alluded to in the following verses. This opposition was very real to Paul, who was imprisoned in Rome as he writes to this church in Philippi. And the believers there in Philippi were very aware of this same opposition. As the city of Philippi, as we mentioned back in the first week, was most likely a military outpost of Rome. But it's also to be well noted. Paul's very aware of this. The people of Philippi who have believed the gospel are very aware that it is this Roman government who crucified Christ. We should take note that Paul says the steadfastness and unity of the church are a sign of our God-granted salvation and of our opponent's destruction. He is clearly speaking of eternal matters as salvation is an eternal issue. And therefore, the destruction of our opponents is likewise an eternal destruction. God does not, however promise Paul or the church in Philippi or even us today that he will deliver us from the physical harm of opponents of the gospel. The list of martyrs in scripture, if you've ever read Fox's book of martyrs or subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs, then you would know that the list of martyrs is many. And indeed, we have been called with Paul and the church of Philippi Today, to join Christ in the fellowship of suffering in this very letter. Philippians 3.10, if we just continued on a little bit in the text, Paul says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. The suffering of God's saints, listen to me, is not only to be expected, but it's to be granted look with me in verse 29 and 30 for to you church in philippi for to you grace church it has been granted for christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict paul says which you saw in me and now here to be in me the evidence of their suffering is found in these two verses But what kind of suffering did they face? First, notice that you have been granted salvation. Then you have also been granted suffering for God's sake. Do you catch the terminology there? Granted? To grant means to give, as in a gift to someone. God considers it his gift not only to save us, but to cause us to suffer or to allow us to suffer. God has given us Not only the gift of eternal life, but also the gift of temporary suffering. It's a gift. 2 Corinthians 4.17 would only support this. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It seems likely that the majority of the suffering that Paul and the Philippians faced was at the hands of Rome. Whether it be by their citizens... Or their soldiers. We know this. That at the very least. For Paul. Suffering meant. We've talked about this before. Beatings. Lashes. Imprisonment. Stoning. For the believers in Philippi. We're not. Exactly sure. What. Their suffering looks like, but most likely, again, at the hands of the church in Rome. But what we do know is when God speaks to suffering in the New Testament, at its very least, it means a maligning of believers. Which means for us today that if God has granted us salvation, then he has too also granted us some level of suffering that we must receive. And if we are anything like the New Testament church, that it it must also mean that we must be 
maligned as well. If there's no maligning in your life, then you're not suffering. And if you're not suffering, then you may not be saved. Christ has saved us and caused us to suffer for his own sake. I think the key to these two verses is, yes, we're saved and yes, we will suffer. But I want you to see that both of those have happened for the sake of Christ. The Christian should consider it God's favor to experience suffering for the sake of Christ. And Christians will endure suffering. True believers will endure any form of suffering with joy and peace and contentment. We see that in Paul throughout this letter. We can't get away from those, those Paul's joy and his contentment in Christ in the midst of his suffering. And the reason that Paul and other believers, true believers in Christ, can suffer with joy and contentment is because they can see the eternal weight of glory that far outweighs any earthly suffering that we may face. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil because of you, excuse me, against you because of me. Suffering is to be expected. God calls it a gift in Philippians chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You are blessed if you are persecuted. Charles Simeon said this, It is painful to the flesh and blood to bear the cross. But what must be the consequence of shunning it? Will not our ease be dearly purchased? Ah, Think of the fate that awaits the fearful. And tremble lest the preservation of your life for a season issue in the loss of it to all eternity. The kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew chapter 5 verse 10, belongs to those who suffer for the sake of Christ. So why is it so essential for us to strive together And stand firm in the face of opposition and suffering. Despite the cost. No matter the degree of suffering. Well, let's look together at the necessity. Of our striving together and standing firm. Because when we strive together and when we stand firm. We are united behind the gospel. We are united with other believers. The unity among fellow church members is strengthened. Paul begins to beat this drum for unity among the saints of Philippi because he knows the opposition and suffering that await them. Unity in the church was necessary for the furtherance of the gospel in Philippi. And listen to me, Grace Church. Unity in the life of this body is necessary for the effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in uptown and the surrounding communities of Memphis. So Paul appeals to the church for unity. We've already seen the imperative to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, meaning that we should be of one mind and one spirit. But listen as Paul continues his plea for unity. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete. It can't be any more clear than this. By being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love. United in spirit. Intent on one purpose. Therefore, the beginning of verse 1 cues us that Paul is continuing his thought from verse 27. Paul almost sounds a bit sarcastic in the first verse of chapter 2. If there is any... Almost sounds like Paul's asking the question. Is there any encouragement that you've received from the person and work of Christ? Do you receive any comfort from the love of the Father? Is there any fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Do you have any affection and compassion in you? What Paul is saying is, if any of these things are true, then make my joy complete by being unified. The question, if any of these 
if any of these things are true, begs a closer look at the four phrases in verse 1. So Paul's appeal to unity, I think, is an appeal to our union with Christ. He's appealing to the church in Philippi saying, if you're united with Christ at all, if there's any encouragement in Christ, how can there not be any encouragement in Christ if Christ is in you? All you have to do is look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died and that he resurrected so that you may be saved. What more encouragement do you need? The appeal to the saints in Philippi is our union with Christ. It would be a similar statement that Paul makes in his second letter to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If there's any consolation of love, Paul says, again, the appeal is to the experience that we have with God. Has God not lavished us with his love? Do we not taste the love of God daily? That's what Paul's saying. Do you have any of this love of God? Have you tasted it? Well, of course you have as a believer. Perhaps this is intended to cause the Philippians to think of the Father's love for them in Christ. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit. All of us, all of those who are truly in Christ, experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So much is implied in this phrase. Do you see, if we just look at verse 1, that that there's these Trinitarian overtones, encouragement in Christ, love of the Father, fellowship of the Spirit. And we continue to see this three-way bond of love that all the saints have toward Christ and one another. They share in this fellowship with the Spirit. They commune with God together. Therefore, they fellowship with one another. It appears that Paul is saying, if Christ is in you at all, But he also appeals to their affection and compassion. Depending on your version, it may read sympathy and affection or bowels and mercy. He's just trying to grasp the most inner terms that he can for affection that we can stir up. Where the first three appeals were to the presence of the triune God in them, this final appeal is to have compassion and mercy toward one another. Paul is basically asking, do you have any affection for me? Do you have any affection for one another? If so, then make my joy complete. Then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He also has an appeal for solidarity, an appeal for unity. Verse 2 is probably the most obvious in its intent. How can you not read Philippians 2, 2, and not see the need for the church to be unified. The appeals build upon one another. Look at the person and work of Christ. See the Father's love for you. See the fellowship that we have of the, with the Spirit. See your affection that you should have for one another. And if those exist, then go the full distance and make my joy complete by being unified. Have one mind. Have one love. Have one Spirit. Be in one accord, have one purpose. Paul's joy would be made complete. Though he remains in prison, chained in Rome, if the believers in Philippi would be united for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, my joy would be complete. I would have nothing else that I could be more joyous about. than to know that you are of one mind. That your one mind is for the progress of the gospel. That you have one love for Jesus Christ, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you have one spirit among you. And that's that the furtherance of the gospel would, would take place regardless of cost. And that you would have one purpose. And that's the proclamation of the gospel. Do you get what this unity lies behind what the foundation of this Excuse me, what the foundation of this unity is for? For the progress, for the furtherance, for the proclamation of the gospel. Love for Jesus and the good news of his death and resurrection is the unifying agent 
among all believers. Show me a body of believers who's in disunity, and I'll show you a body of believers who do not have the progress of the gospel as their primary concern. If we are united by the gospel, with the gospel, for the gospel, then we cannot be divided. One people who are truly indivisible. Make my joy complete by being, by being unified for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of gospel clarity and effectiveness, be unified with one another. But is it really so simple? How can so many believers gather together, like all of us here at Grace Church today, be truly unified? How can so many believers gather together, truly be unified? Surely, there has to be some difference of opinion among us. Surely, there has to be some sort of division. Not everyone can really get along in the life of the church, can they? Well, if the enemy has his way, then of course... There will be divisions. There will be strife. There will be a demanding of preferences or rights by individuals. I admit, when Christ and the gospel are not preeminent in the hearts of the saints, then unity is impossible. But Paul's appeal is for unity around the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The appeal for unity cannot be fulfilled in the life of the local church without being unified around the gospel. But underneath that lies something even greater still. Yes, the gospel, the progress of the gospel unifies us. But discontent and unity can still raise its ugly head without the presence of of humility in the individuals of every church. So what I want us to see next is not just Paul's appeal for unity, but I want us to see the need for humility in the life of the church. The way that we guard against every disposition of disunity in the life of the church is by being truly humble. But doesn't that, isn't that what the gospel does to us? The need for humility is necessary to our obedience to be unified. But before we dive off into the topic of humility, let me begin by saying this concerning humility. I will be the first to admit, I will readily admit that there have been men and women throughout different times in history who have demonstrated a high level of modesty and respect and selflessness who had no measure of Christ in them. We could come up with names today of people who have been well-received and respected throughout history because they demonstrated some form of humility. But let me also say with with a statement like that, that genuine humility is peculiar to Christianity and to Christianity alone. Many have had some form of humility, but it's been a false humility. There's only one true form of humility. I believe we find, or we begin to find the evidences of that in today's text. So let's continue to press forward in Philippians chapter 2. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. We'll, we'll begin to see some of the marks of true humility. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. To understand the first half of verse 3, I believe we must be acquainted with the second half of verse 3. For us to be able to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, We must have humility of mind. We must regard one another as more important than ourselves or better than ourselves. Before we can do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. 
we must have humility of mind. The way that we avoid selfishness and empty conceit is by giving up our own right and yielding to the preferences of others. I'm daily humbled. I can say this this morning without embarrassing my wife. I'm humbled every day by my wife's humility. I come barging in from work with all my preferences. Tired, hungry, ready for a break. Time after time, there she is ready to serve very selflessly. But God's word says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So let me apply, maybe for us as husbands, when it's so easy for us to demand our rights after a long day of work, when we're tired and hungry, ready for that break, to consider our wives as more important than ourselves. No matter the circumstances, we are to esteem our wives as better than ourselves. So what does that look like for us as husbands? Well, if you have children, it means handling the kids for a little while. Perhaps it means helping clean up the house while you're tired and hungry so that it's in order, so that she can concentrate on dinner or assisting her with dinner. That's not always easy for us to do, but according to God's word, we are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And not, do not merely look out to your own personal interests, but also to the interests of others. What about in the workplace, toward co-workers or a boss? How do we esteem them as better than ourselves or consider or regard them as more important than ourselves? Well, it looks the same no matter where we go, whether at home or in the workplace or wherever we may be in the life of the church to fellow believers. We are to consider others more important than ourselves. We are not to be empty, conceited or full of vainglory. Empty, conceit and vainglory are simply words that denote someone who esteems themselves. They bestow on themselves a, a baseless glory. To be empty conceited or to be full of vainglory means that you think way too highly of yourself. Proverbs 27.2, that book so full of wisdom, says this. Let another praise you and not your own lips. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. We are empty conceited when we tout ourselves. So I know what we're all thinking in our minds right now. I don't go around bragging about myself like that. Well, that's probably true. We're not so blatant with our empty conceitedness. We're not so blatant with our vainglory. But maybe there's some more subtle evidences that this lack of humility exists in us. Maybe there's some subtle evidences that this humility exists in you. How often do you make mention of your accomplishments to those around you? You just have to let people know what you've accomplished. You got to let them know what you've accomplished in this life, what you've achieved. That's empty conceited and full of vainglory. Or we want to remind others of our position or rank. What about this one? When we have an opinion about everything. This shows up a lot of different ways, but practically speaking, I've noticed this is prevalent on Facebook and Twitter. Do, do you have to say something about everything? Don't have something to say about everything on Facebook and Twitter all day long. It's brash and it's prideful. 
Now, I'm, I'm not going to be legalistic about this and say you can't post more than three times on Facebook a day, but if you're posting on Facebook all day long, it may be a sign that you think your opinion matters to everybody else. And it's a sign of empty conceit and vainglory. What about when we always want to one-up somebody? Every story someone tells, we have a better one. Every adventure of another has been surpassed by our own. There's a comedian named Brian Regan who calls this the me monster. Somehow, a comedian can pinpoint a problem that we have. Yet, we as believers in Christ have overlooked these me monsters that he speaks about. We're always trying to one-up somebody. What about this? When we assert our superior wisdom into conversations by correcting other people. Well, actually, how many times have we said that? We like to exalt our strengths and downplay others or ridicule the habits of others that we are no longer guilty of. Let's not fool ourselves. No one would consider themselves to be conceited, but we all have tendencies that exalt self. I may not have listed yours today, but you have them. I have them. We all have them. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Are you considering others' interest above your own? Listen to how Matthew Henry says it. Be severe upon your own faults and charitable in our judgments of others. Be quick in observing our own defects and infirmities, but ready to overlook and make favorable allowances for the defects of others. We must esteem the good which is in others above that which is in ourselves, for we best know our own unworthiness and imperfections. We must, like Paul, like Christ, die to self and serve others. Christ is the perfect example of true humility. If we are to be united for the sake of the gospel, then we must humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself. To know true humility is to know Christ. What we are about to look at as we continue in the text goes beyond the accomplishments of the best men, the most humble men that mankind has ever known. The humility of Christ can only be formed in those who follow Christ, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Only with Christ in you can you truly be humble as Christ is humble. So let's look at the humility of Christ and let's continue in the text together. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this. Here's another one of those imperatives, those commands. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. What attitude? Well, the one he was just talking about, this humble attitude, which we also see in Christ. And so Paul is giving for us this example of Christ's humility. Let's look at it. Who, although Christ existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. According to the text, we are to imitate Christ. We are to have the same humble attitude that Christ had. Christ's humility, listen to this, consisted of abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest shame and disgrace. We know nothing of the condescension that Christ took upon himself. And in comparison, our humility consists of refraining from exalting ourselves by a false estimation. See, Christ is God. He had every reason to glory in himself. And yet, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God's telling us to be like Christ in our humility. The problem is, We don't start off at the high position that Christ started off in. We start off in the lowest of low. So what could we possibly humble ourselves 
from when we're already at the bottom? The problem is we don't see ourselves at the bottom where we truly are. But we have exalted ourselves in our minds. Jesus gave up his right. All that is required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves what is not ours. Is this not the original sin of mankind? Genesis chapter 3 verse 5. For God knows that this is Satan the serpent speaking to Adam and Eve. For God knows that when you eat, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What were Adam and Eve tempted with? A position that did not belong to them. In pride, they wrongfully thought that they could be like God. They exalted themselves in their minds and they bought the devil's lie. Like Adam, we too often think of ourselves to be like God. Nobody would say that. None of us would say I'm empty, conceited, full of vain glory, and that I think myself to be like God. But when pride arises, we say all those things. Whether we confess it with our mouth is one thing. Since the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we, who are nothing, should be lifted up with pride. Christ, before the foundation of the world, was in the form of God. Because from the beginning, He had His glory with the Father. And He says this very thing in His great prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. But in Christ's humility, he did not manifest himself to be what he really was. Nor did he, in open view of men, show what belonged to him by right. Jesus was equal with the Father. Jesus is equal with God the Father. But he did not make this plain to mankind while he was in the flesh who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. How does one who is equal to God not consider himself equal with God? For where there can be equality with God without robbery, as the King James Version would say, except where there is the very essence of God. The only way that Jesus could not consider equality with God, though he was God, is through his own self-abasement. God's word itself says that he will not give his glory to another. So how could Christ have this glory with God if he was not God? So the text makes it very clear that Jesus is God, yet he's humbled himself. He empties himself, according to verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This emptying is Christ abasing himself, Christ choosing humiliation, willingly. Even though he was God, he was brought to nothing. Christ does not deprive himself of the Godhead here, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen. He concealed his deity under the weakness of the flesh. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening his glory, but by simply concealing it. But Brian, what about the miracles that he performed? Or what about the transfiguration? Does this not reveal his glory? And I would say that even in those Glorious events. Christ in all his glory was still veiled by his flesh. And had Christ been unhindered by the flesh, both in the performing of miracles and in his transfiguration, everyone who would be witness to those things would have been obliterated. And we'd have no record of such things unless God himself physically pinned them for us. But Christ condescended further still by taking the form of a bondservant. 
Jesus took the form of man to serve the Father, but he also became a servant to serve men. Did Isaiah not foretell of this, this suffering saint, this suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53? And Paul says, and being made in the likeness of man, creator taking the form of his creation. And being made in the likeness of men means that God was brought down low to the level of men so that he could be known and seen by men. Here we have the fullness of God in the form of lowly man. I imagine that Christ's body was just aching to burst forth in all his glory. And yet, in humility, he contained the glory of God. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So here we have Christ's condescension. Even further still, not only did he take on the appearance of man, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Christ would descend even further still that though he was immortal God, the Lord of life and death, he nevertheless became obedient to the will of the triune God to the point of death. He was a part of the triune council that would cause him to suffer this great humility. But it wasn't just any death. God's word says even death on a cross. He did not just die any death, but the cross death. The type of death that God says is accursed. Galatians 3.13, some more of Paul's commentary on this same thought. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became the most despicable, cursed being. He shared the glory of God with the Father. And yet we find him the most accursed being on the planet. In the universe. No one has ever been humbled to such depths. We know nothing of the humility of Christ. And Christ willingly chose to humble himself to such shame and disgrace and humiliation. The humiliation of Christ, listen to me, is both a fact to be believed that we see very clearly in Philippians chapter 2, and a pattern to be imitated. So how do we have this attitude in ourselves, which we see in Christ, when we could never humble ourselves the way that Christ had? Well, we must strive to this. We must see ourselves in relation to God, which is the sin of our father Adam. We're not gods. We're not like God. We'll never be God. We must see ourselves in relation to God. That we're sinful man in need of a Savior. We must deny ourselves the way Christ denied Himself by emptying Himself. We must have no falsely assumed rights We hear all the time about human rights. Listen to me. Saints, as believers in Christ, we have no rights. There's only one who has rights to us, and it's Christ. We have no rights to ourselves. We must be a bondservant to Christ and the gospel. That's how we have this humble attitude that Christ had. Christ was willing to die. So the gospel may come to fruition. We must be willing to serve in the same manner. We must be willing to die for the sake of the gospel. But praise be to God that our text doesn't end with this utter abasement of Jesus Christ. 
Look with me as we continue on. Yes, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But it was for this very self-imposed humiliation that Christ was exalted to the highest elevation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look with me in verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. Christ was bestowed with the name, the reputation, and the dignity that is above every name. There is no reputation that matches the reputation of Christ. Christ's name is a divine name, and it belongs to God alone. As a reward for Christ's suffering, as a reward for his obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, Christ is given supreme power. And he assumes the highest rank of honor. And there is no equal. There's no second that's even close. His majesty is immeasurable. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. There is none like him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow with respect to him, in adoration for him. That Christ Jesus is to be worshipped. Is your heart not even now leaping to worship God as you read that God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Not Merely this inward affection for God, though we very much should have that. But also this outward profession. This visible sign of us bowing the knee to God. Christ will receive the glory due His name. And there will not be one exception of those who bow the knee before Him. Of those in heaven, every angel that's ever existed will bow the knee to God. And on earth, praise Him, all ye saints. But even those who now deny Christ, who refuse to bow the knee, who refuse to confess that He is Lord, will bow the knee without exception. God's Word says, and under the earth, even Satan himself will bow to the Son of the Most High God. All of creation will know its place before the Almighty God and Maker. Every single tongue, without exception, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those who refuse to bow the knee can only do so for a while. The day is coming. Listen to me, listeners. The day is coming. You may not have bowed the knee in this life, but you will bow the knee. You may not have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord in this life, but you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will pay homage to the King. And even though all things are in subjection to Christ even now as I speak, the fulfillment of this subjection to Him will not be complete until the day of Christ's return. And that which has begun will be fully completed on that day. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all this exaltation of Christ points us back to the Father and His glory. The majesty of God has been manifested to men through Christ So it shines forth in Christ and the Father is glorified in the Son. We will see the glory of God most clearly in the face of Christ, particularly in His death and resurrection, and most assuredly in His exaltation. 
It is an amazing thing that the humility of Christ and the exaltation of Christ is all for the glory of God. And yet simultaneously for the good of His saints. And though it pleased God for a time to crush Jesus on the cross, as Jesus humbled Himself obediently to the point of death, according to God's Word in Romans chapter 1, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Christ has risen from the grave. He stands before us the exalted one. Though humble, exalted. Jesus, the humble, exalted one. Let's worship this risen, exalted Jesus together.